Turn over in 1 Peter to chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at just a handful of verses uh, in this letter that wrap up a big section that we've been chipping away at week by week for the last month or so. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 to 12. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, a couple of weeks back, I guess it was closer to a month ago, almost four weeks ago, Shaka preached a sermon that helped us kick off this section of Peter's letter. It's a sermon, or rather a section, uh, where Peter is trying to help his friends understand several different examples in their own lives of, of places where their commitment to Jesus shapes the way they relate to the world around, around them. The category he's using is, one, is aliens or sojourners. You, yes, live here, but your belonging, your citizenship, your real home is over there, still to come, still promised, an inheritance that's yours and protected and preserved, but that you can't see yet. So, so Peter's trying to help them see, what does it look like for me to interact here and now in solidarity with that and then? And he's given him several examples. He gave him an example of government, of, of slaves and, uh, who were Christians and, and how they should relate to their masters, of, of husbands and wives, how to relate to one another in marriage if you're hoping on your inheritance that's still to come. And in the section that we're looking at this morning, he's wrapping this up, this theme of, of examples of alien living, belonging to one kingdom, living in another one. And uh, what he gives us here is sort of a catch-all for a particular kind of community that he is encouraging us to seek after. What it would look like for us as a community to be aliens in the world, sojourners, bringing honor to God by the way we live here and now, what what that would look like is for us to be a community of love. It would be uh, for us to relate to one another first and foremost through the love that God has shown to us in Jesus. In other words, what Peter's saying here is just passing on what Jesus told him. The night that Jesus was betrayed, when they celebrated communion, which we just celebrated here together, Jesus talked to them about their calling as his disciples to help the world know that they were with him and what he was like by the way they loved each other. He said, you're going to love one another in the way that I loved you, and that's how people will know you're with me. The sign of your attachment to me is your love. Paul says the same thing all over his letters. Think of 1 Corinthians 13 especially. And here Peter, in one of these other early letters about what it means to be a Christian, goes to the same place. So we're going to go to the same place. We're going to talk about material that's hopefully pretty familiar to a lot of you, but that comes to us through Peter on the backside of a lot of material that's prepared us for it. And I think it's going to help it land on us, hopefully in a fresh and new and powerful way this morning. All I want to do in the time that we have this morning is to talk about what love looks like, the character of love in a community, and then to talk about what love receives, the blessing of love in a community. What love looks like, a profile of it. That's the first couple of verses we're going to look at. And then the promise that this kind of love in community gets blessed by God. That's the next thing we'll look at together. The character of love and the blessing of love. What we want to leave with is a clear sense of our target as a community of Christians for our relationships with each other. Now, I want to begin by reading these verses uh, before we start to unpack them together. Hopefully you've found the verses by now in your Bibles. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read what we're going to consider together this morning. I'm going to start with uh, verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 3. This is God's word to us this morning. Finally, 
all of you. He's been talking to specific groups up to this point. Now he addresses the whole community. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to profile this morning the beloved community. Community of people marked by love. What does that look like and what can we expect from it? Start with the character of love. That's where Peter starts. When he's summing up his section on what it means to live like an alien, citizen of one country while you're present bodily in another country, he sums it up with a picture of love in community. Did you notice maybe in verse 8 where we started reading there a moment ago, did you notice that there was just this list of character qualities, this list of attributes, if you will, that he's applying to the community he's calling them to? There's five of them in verse 8. And then he gives them a situation of love, a situation for love in verse 9. In verse 8, Peter is using, it seems like, Peter is using a a way of getting your point across that was really common in the ancient world, especially that part of the ancient world that was influenced by the Hebrew Bible, by the Old Testament. People like Peter who would have grown up hearing those stories, reading those poems, they would have had a way of getting their point across that's pretty different from the way we get our point across. A lot of times if we're trying to make an argument, as Westerners, we, we move from point A to point B to point C, and then point D is like driving it home. We build to a climax at the end in a kind of linear way, a straight line way. For the Hebrews and for people like Peter who grew up in that context, they like to make their main point come at the middle. They like to build things around a, a string of either parts of a story or in this case, a string of attributes where the one in the center is the most important thing and the ones on the side of it, on either side of it, leading up to it and coming out of it are just helping you understand what he means by the thing at the center. So what, uh, what we have here in verse eight is five attributes. The one in the middle is love. The ones on either side are meant to help you see what kind of love he has in mind, what he means by love. And in each case, those things on, the other, on each side of that central middle point mirror one another and help you understand are meant to be viewed together. So in this structure, just look at, look at verse 8 with me, and then I'm going to start talking about what each of these things means. Unity of mind, in my translation, comes first. It matches up with a humble mind at the very end. Sympathy comes second. It matches up with a tender heart, or maybe your translation says compassion. Those two things are meant to go together. They're supposed to help you understand what each of the other terms means. And then at the center is brotherly love. This is what all those other terms are fleshing out for you. So I want to just, in in sort of homage to the way he chose to make his point, and as a way of helping us understand how all these attributes fit together, I'm going to follow that that, uh, structure. 
I'm going to put it in a way that a Westerner would appreciate it and go one, two, three, all the way through it. But I'm going to talk first about how this beloved community of brotherly love that he's calling us to reflects unity through humility. That's the first and the fifth. And we're going to talk about how this beloved community, this brotherly love that he's calling us to means sympathy through compassion. That's the second and the fourth. And then hopefully we'll have a better sense together of what this love means and be ready to understand why he applies it in verse 9 the way he does. All right, enough of how I'm going to go about this. I'm just going to start going about this, all right? Here's the first thing you need to know about the character of love, and it comes through in verse 8 in in a couple of these attributes that he gives us. What kind of love is he calling us to here? What kind of love makes us look like aliens in this world while we belong to the world to come but live here now? Well, it'll be a love marked by unity through humility. That's the first point. The first thing about the character of this love. He mentions unity of mind. Uh, Some some of your translations might say harmony. I think that's even better. Because this word actually has that shade, according to things that I read this week, people who know a lot more about this language than I do. It, It isn't just the kind of unity you can have when what you've got is uniformity. It's the kind of unity that you have when lots of different people come together around the same thing. It's harmony, not just uniformity. So one guy used uh, music as a great example. A unity despite difference has a kind of power to it. In music, there is a kind of power to unison singing, right? Where everybody's singing the same notes at the same time. That can be really great and powerful and beautiful. But there's another kind of power that comes when, every, when, when there are different voices singing with their different strengths and their different ranges, different notes suited to them in their range, but ultimately part of the same song, following the same composer's guide, following the same conductor's lead. There's a different kind of power that comes through there, and that's the kind of power that, that Peter is trying to put in front of us as our goal for our community. Where Yeah, we're, we're not all the same, and we shouldn't try to collapse our differences. That doesn't help anyone. We shouldn't try to be other than what God has made us to be, other than, 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 than what we were born into and the experiences that have formed us into who we are, other than, than, than you. Be yourself, by all means. But be you singing the same song that all these other people are singing, following the same lead and honoring the same Savior. The differences aren't erased. In fact, what's unique about each one adds to the beauty and the power. That said... Unity that comes through harmony rather than uniformity. Unity that comes when we're all different, staying different, but trying to do the same thing together. That comes at a cost that uniformity never asks of you. For you to be different from people, but working together. Interested in different things, marked by different things, but pursuing the same thing at the same time. Well, that means that no one perspective or no one set of interests or no one set of preferences gets to reign supreme. It means that everybody has to die to themselves somehow. Unity based on uniformity, see, it's it's just natural. It's inevitable. And in a way, when you're really just loving something that's exactly like you, it's just loving yourself. It means like looking in the mirror and loving what you see. Isn't that guy great? Look at that. Look at that nice, close cropped hair. Isn't that nice? Look at that physique. You know, isn't that guy nice? He's got great taste in clothes. I really like the way he dresses. Well, you're just loving yourself. You're just looking at you. And there's a kind of uniformity that only does that. It's just a way of affirming me. When I affirm you, I affirm me. But not, 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 not in this community. No, this is going to be different. 
This is the kind of unity in harmony that always requires humility. That's why Peter pairs it up with that other attribute. Unity of mind requires humility of mind if you're going to be unified with people who aren't like you. Because humility of mind is not about thinking low of yourself. It's not about hating yourself. It's not about thinking you're not worthy of other people's love and attention. It's not that. It's thinking of yourself less. Somebody put it that way. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's actually not having your own self and your own needs and your own desires and proclivities reign supreme in your mind and in your heart. You're willing to set those aside so that you can prioritize other people's needs and interests, other people's desires. The kind of humility that creates harmony out of difference and shows a love that honors God is a humility that prefers other people. And that kind of humility, that is not what anybody in the ancient Roman world was looking for. In fact, I mean, their writings from this time about the good life and what you should be and how to, build, how, to, how to guide your life, the kind of philosophy or ethics of that time, they were down on humility. They explicitly condemned it. It was a sign of weakness to them. They valued self-promotion and honor. Now, today, we're a lot more likely to value humility, to celebrate it. Uh, we love the idea of humility, <laughs> and we don't scorn it necessarily. But today we're just wired up to approach everything like a customer would. Even if we celebrate humility on paper, like what we, we evaluate relationships, people, things that we bring into our lives based on how they fit with what we are, what we're interested in, what we need. We pick and choose based on us. In other words, our filter for what we choose to incorporate into our lives is, is us. So what Peter tells us is just as radical now as it was then. In other words, this kind of love is supernatural. It points to something beyond us, and that's why it brings God honor. Like this, kind of, this kind of love just doesn't work. If it's a human project, it won't work. I saw something of this in play on a recent trip. I recently took a trip abroad to visit some of our members who work um, and serve in other countries. One of them uh, serves a local church that's public, uh, meets, has its own building. It's, it's allowed by the government to exist in this country. And, uh, and it's the only one in town uh, that, that is that way. And so people don't get to be picky about where they go to church. Right? The handful of Christians that are there in this city all go there. And uh, it's beautiful to see how they're deferring to each other. I've never seen anything like it. You've got, you got Christians from different countries speaking different languages, several different countries represented there. Some of them locals in that city, like born and raised in that country. Some of them refugees from neighboring countries that are war-torn. Uh, some of them there as students from other countries. You've got, you've got a lot of different reasons for people to be there. They're all there, though, and they're all rallying around Jesus. And in their life together, they defer to one another. So we'd be coming along. Not only do they have translation services, for people who don't speak the, the main dominant national language. They do have that. But they also would have in their worship services, they would have one song, if, if it was available to them, where they'd sing it in the home language, the language of that city. Then they'd sing the exact same song in the language that's, that's natural to the refugees, a lot of the refugees who've moved there. Same song, they'd sing it twice, once in your language, once in my language. They're deferring to each other. And yeah, that means that a lot of times you have to just stand there and you don't say anything. And you just listen to your friends sing. But sometimes the choruses would overlap because it would be biblical words and they would just sing them together. And it's just beautiful to stand in the middle of that and watch them defer to one another as they come together around Jesus. 
I think it's a beautiful model of what Peter's calling for here for our church. Not evaluating options, not comparing and contrasting, not, not wondering if we might get better somewhere else, but just thankful to be together with Christians, deferring to one another where we can. I want to encourage you to, to, to think about this and to ask yourself some questions. To, to look at your range of personal relationships, to start with your own life, to look at your range of personal relationships and to ask, do, do, this, do these relationships, is this range of relationships require self-denial from you? Does it require you to set aside preferences that come naturally to you? Here's another way to ask that question. Would anybody be surprised by the friends that you have and what those friendships involve and cost for you? I want to invite you to ask the same questions about our church, about our community. I mean, a lot of us are asking these regularly, uh, and, and the, quest, the answers to these questions are, are wide open. We're, we're seeking, we're searching, we're praying, but ask things like, is God necessary to the kind of relationships we see in our church, to the range of people that are coming here to worship and, and live together? And of course, you can't be other than who you are. I mean, all of us have personalities. We have things that are just us being us that we can't change. We're not asking for hypocrisy here. And, and, and sure, us being us, I mean, you gotta, you gotta have music. You gotta have somebody talking up here. Not everybody's gonna like that at the same level, right? And so sometimes just us being us is gonna mean that some people are gonna be more comfortable elsewhere. I get that. But what we wanna, what we wanna ask and be pushing for is where are our opportunities for humility and deference that could lead to more harmony than what we have? To more diversity coming together around Jesus in harmony. And I want to ask you to pray for us about that. Because it's easy to have that as a goal and it's a lot harder to actually do anything with it. it to, to know what steps you can take that will bring God more glory from your community life. And we are definitely not where we want to be. This is an aspiration that we have, not a reality we're living with in the way that we want to. So I'm asking you guys to be allies with us in this, to pray that God will do this work and give us sensitivity and insight into things we can do to bring him glory by creating a community of love around differences. Help us with that. Don't just judge us about it. We want to guard against two forms of unity that aren't centered on Christ because... because that's easy, right? That kind of unity is easy to build and all of us are tempted to it and we're drawn to people who are like us because we like us. And so we want to be really careful that we are not more unified based on personal interests, on, you know, politics like I prayed for earlier and our alignment on political issues, economics, age, race, the kinds of things I prayed about earlier. We want to make sure that those things are not the foundation of our unity that we're not doing things to encourage unity on those, on those fronts. I want you to be helping us think critically about that and working with us to try to grow in health. All right, that's all I'm going to say there on that point. That's a lot to think about, a lot to take in. But I want to move on because we've got, we got more to cover. The picture actually starts to fill out even more in these next attributes that Peter uses. And you can see even more through these next attributes why this kind of community only ever happens when God builds it. Why it brings him honor as the architect of it, of doing things we couldn't do for ourselves. The kind of community, the character of love he's calling us to is marked by sympathy through compassion. That's number two. So unity through humility, that's one thing, but also sympathy through compassion. So that's the second and the fourth attributes that he points us to here. Have sympathy, 
have a tender heart or compassionate heart. So sympathy here means pretty much what you expect it would. Um, the word that it's translating means pretty much what we mean by it. I think it's a little closer to empathy, but it's pretty, I think you get the point. It's, a, it's about taking the perspective of somebody else, of understanding what they're experiencing. Love always identifies with somebody else, takes their experience seriously, works hard to see it, and to, and to move past the distance that keeps them as an other. Like that, that's what sympathy does. It tries to bridge gaps. It's one way that harmony becomes possible with people who are different from you, is, is, is sympathizing with them. The other quality, though, sympathy is only part of this picture. The other quality, compassion or a tender heart, fills things in a little bit. You're not just trying to understand what someone else is experiencing cognitively, right? I mean, your mind. Your, your, your target is to, is to even feel, to completely identify with them so that you share what they're experiencing, so that you experience it with them. That's where the tenderheartedness or compassion comes from. The sympathy that you have, the understanding of what it's like to be them is built on the fact that you're with them in whatever it is they're facing. That when they hurt, it hurts you. When they're happy, it makes you happy. You don't just see and acknowledge their pain or see and acknowledge their happiness. You're moved by it so that it becomes yours. That's what he's trying to say to us. He's calling for a community in which people identify with each other like that. Friends, that's what we promise each other in church membership. And one of our promises in our church covenant that members make to one another when they join our church is the promise to rejoice and to mourn together and to bear one another's burdens. That's language straight out of the New Testament, but it's, it's capturing this point right here, that we're going to work hard, do what we can to try to feel with one another what each other feels so that no one has to go through anything alone. But that's not easy. And it's certainly not natural. Last week, we celebrated a child dedication ceremony here, uh, just giving thanks to God over children that he's added to our church and uh, promising that we're going to do everything we can to serve them well and to help their parents point them to, to Jesus. We've been, we've been having those celebrations from early on in our church's life. We've never once celebrated that occasion without having friends in the room at that time who were mourning the loss of children through miscarriage or the struggle with infertility. Every time we've celebrated, we've mourned at the same time. That's what this kind of sympathy requires. There's no celebration that isn't tinged by sadness and no sadness that isn't tinged by gratitude for gifts that even others receive. This kind of sympathy through compassion means Christians of different ages, different maturity levels, taking each other's struggles seriously. Working hard to understand what they feel like. So that might mean that in a small group, a 40-something adult who's facing job loss gets to enter into the stress that a college sophomore feels coming up on their finals in December. Gets to feel that stress as their own. Hurt for them. Pray for them. Remind them of truth and God's love in the context of it. Because this is their struggle right now. And they're, they're, they're yours. You're with them. And it might mean that college sophomore rising above the, that need of the moment and trying to imagine what it feels like to have a family and no way to provide for them. To carry that stress with you into your finals. To pray for it as you pray for your own needs. 
It's going to mean empathy and sympathy and compassion across racial divisions that are bitter and deeply rooted in our past and especially ugly in public life right now. I mean, the, the most memorable sermon I've ever heard on this passage was preached by an African-American pastor friend a few years ago and had a profound impact on me. I've, I've probably mentioned this sermon to you guys before. I don't remember. It, it was around or maybe just before that traumatic summer where there were so many examples of violent death in African-American communities. Um, I don't remember exactly what year that was, maybe 2014, you guys probably remember it was just several it was like a rash one after another after another and this brother was preaching to a mostly white audience of pastors knowing that I, I, the tendency often when something like that happens is to jump into the why did it happen into the what caused it into the who should, who's really responsible and just to, to, to pry around into details that are just aren't accessible to any of us and that are really thoroughly just beside the point this, this brother argued that for Christians, what matters is sympathy. That's where everything starts. So if I'm hurting, I need to know you're hurting too. I need to know that whatever went into it, this hurt me. Does it hurt you? Do you feel my pain? And I, so I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, of course. Whatever other target I'm shooting at in a situation like that, of course, this is where it starts. My brother's in pain. That has to matter to me. The kind of love that, that, that Peter is talking about here, the character of it, is one where whatever hurts you hurts me, no matter what else is involved. Sympathy is the basic posture in Christian community. It isn't some sort of Trojan horse for some other radical agenda. It isn't, dressed, it isn't just dressed up hatred for America or for police or for Western civilization. Sympathy is an expression of another identity that's more fundamental to who we are. It's an expression of the fact that we belong to Jesus together. That we are one as his body together. And that what hurts one hurts all. That's what it looks like for that identity to have a deeper impact on what we experience now than anything else. I want to say one more thing about the character of love before we wrap up this morning with a, a, a much more brief look at the blessing of love. There's one more thing, there's one more character quality that Peter points us to in these verses on the character of the loving community that Jesus' work for us creates in us and among us. What does it look like? What kind of love are we talking about? Well, verse 9 shows us that it is a love that looks like grace in response to evil. It looks like grace in response to evil. So in verse 9, he leaves the, the, the list of attributes. He's done with those. And he moves on to one particular test case. All right, I'm telling you, brotherly love is your target. Here's what it would look like in this particular situation. So, for example, do not repay evil for evil. That's what it looks like. Do not return reviling for reviling. And that alone is radical enough, isn't it? I mean, the, the talk of unity and harmony and humility and sympathy, it's costly for sure in all these ways I've talked about, but it has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know anybody who, who wants less compassion in the world. <laughs> there has never been a Miss America contest who'd said, a contestant who said that that was her goal for life, was to bring less compassion to the world. That's not a thing. But, but where Peter goes next, I mean, this seems extreme. Seriously, don't repay evil with evil? 
Don't revile when you're reviled. In love, you, you're not going to go there. You're not going to retaliate. Back when Peter first wrote this, huge countercultural emphasis here. They were an honor, shame society. Your reputation was everything. And the way people treat you affects your reputation. How, if you stand for it, if you're, if you're, if you're called out by somebody or, or thrown down by somebody verbally and you don't rise to that, then you're going to live with that mark for as long as you live around the people who knew it happened. And that would probably be pretty much everybody you know back in these times. I mean, even in our own country, this was true uh, a couple hundred years ago. I, I was with my boys at the Tennessee State History Museum a while back. Highly recommended. Great museum. Underrated. About to get some new digs downtown near the farmer's market. So be on the lookout for that. They got a mummy in there, for one thing. That's beside the point, but they do. Somehow got a mummy. I don't know how they got that, but they, do, they have one. Um, the, uh, the, the thing that caught their eye, though, we were looking through like the Tennessee history stuff. And I think it was Andrew Jackson's dueling pistols were there. Probably one of many sets that he had, him being Andrew Jackson, loving a good duel. And their minds were just blown that seriously, you could get insulted by somebody and you, your, your response to that is to like pick a time in a morning down by the river and bring your pistols? Like you actually had these sets? And they're, you know, they're, they're carefully uh, carved uh, wood and, and embossed with pearls and carved metals. And I mean, they're works of art and they're for shooting people who insult you. It's ridiculous is what they were thinking. They couldn't believe it. But in most societies throughout history, that's a lot more normal response to evil. In Peter's society, that was the normal response. And what he's saying is not for you. And not only do you not duel to the death over an insult, you don't even return it. You keep your gloves on. Then he takes it even further. As if non-retaliation weren't hard enough, he says, not only will you not retaliate and repay evil or reviling for evil or reviling, on the contrary, he says, you bless them. You get insulted and the word you send back over is a blessing. Seriously? I mean, I get maybe not holding it against them. I mean, working on forgiveness, compassion, trying to see things from their side. But you're actually asking me to go further than that and to do good to them? to bless them, to honor them publicly with words that are good for them in front of other people. That's what you want me to do? It almost strains the, the, the imagination. But what, what he's saying here is just perfectly consistent with what Jesus told him. He's just passing on what he heard Jesus tell him and all of the Christians uh, who, who, who benefited from Jesus' ministry then and through the Gospels ever since. He's just echoing Jesus' words. In Luke chapter 6, which I won't take the time to read, Jesus says, okay, so you love people who love you. Who doesn't? Even the tax collectors and the Gentiles do that. He means, in other words, even those who aren't living in the light of God's love, even those who are ripping people off as a way of life, like the mercenaries among us, who really only ever look at things for what they stand to gain. Even the people who are benefiting from the oppression of their own people, the tax collectors, love people who, who love them. <laughs> But you, 
you will pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. You will love not just those who love you, but your enemies. And that's how people will know you're with me. So friends, by whom do you feel mistreated this morning? Even Maybe even reviled. Think about who that is. What would it look like for you to bless them? That's the character of love Peter's putting in front of us. Now, I don't want to conclude this morning without giving at least a brief word to what Peter says at the end of this section. And I think it raises tricky questions for us that can keep us from learning what we want to from this passage. You know, I think the main emphasis here is what we've already covered. This is what a loving community looks like. When you love like this, you're aliens in this world, but you're bringing honor to the king you're waiting for. But then at the end of it, he says, live like this, bless those who hurt you, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then in verses 10 to 12, he goes into a quote from Psalm 34 that says the same thing. So don't get, don't get hung up on the specific things he says, excuse me, he says not to do or to do from Psalm 34. They're just kind of echoing things he's already said about keeping your tongue from evil and turning from evil and doing good. He's just echoing things he's already said. But, but the point, the reason he's quoting this Psalm is that he gets to the end of it and it says, the Lord's eyes are on those who fear him. The Lord's ears are open to their prayers. If you want God to be for you, be righteous because he's against those who are evil. Bless those who hurt you because this is what you were called to so you get a blessing. And it seems super transactional. It seems like you'll only get from God what you pay for through your behavior. And that seems out of character with things we've already said about Peter and his message and things that you've heard from our church and its teaching for as long as you've been with us. So I do want to end this morning by addressing this question and trying to help you see what Peter's saying here and invite you to talk to me later if you have more questions about it. What makes this good news? Well, I think I need to remind you first of all that Peter didn't start his letter here. What he says here about blessing, about living like this in order to obtain a blessing has a context to it. Remember where he started his letter. If you weren't with us early on in this series, I want to refer you to the first chapter of this letter where Peter makes it super clear that everything we hope to gain in life, every blessing we ever hope to enjoy comes to us based on what Jesus has done, on what's happened to him, not on what we do, not on what's happened to us. So at the very beginning of chapter one, he says, you've been born again into a living hope, but how? Because you are just nailing it at loving people who aren't kind to you. No, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is, that is imperishable, undefiled, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Why? Because he just knows you're gonna nail it from now until then. No, kept in heaven for you by God who is preserving you by his power for that day. So, so Peter starts his letter by reminding you everything you hope to gain from life is based on Jesus, not on you. But I want you to see that he hasn't changed subjects here in this chapter and now all of a sudden he's changing the rules of the game. What you hope to gain 
the hope of your inheritance as a Christian is based on what happened to Jesus. And it's also true that those who don't revile in return and bless in return get a blessing from God. Everything you hope to gain from Jesus comes through him because he was faithful to this text. Because Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. He earned a blessing from his father. Because Jesus, when evil was done against him, did not respond with evil, but with love and compassion, he is blessed by his father. He earned it. Because Jesus was marked by a humility of mind that only ever looked at the interests of others. He emptied himself and was obedient even to the point of death on a cross so that sinners don't have to die for their sin. He was humble and deferential in his life. Therefore, he is blessed because he earned it. He deserves it. Think about his sympathy with us, his compassion. He couldn't pass up a crowd of needy people without stopping to heal them. Think about the fact that he even took on a body like ours and lived a life like we have to live so that he would know what it's like for us, so that he could actually help us in what we face. He is marked by a sympathy that is unmatched anywhere. Therefore, he deserves to be blessed by his father. And the gospel message is that we get everything he deserves. 1 Peter 2.24 reminds us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That it's by his wounds we are healed. That what he did, what he earned, he earned for us. But 1 Peter 2.24 also says... He did that, in part, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So he didn't just earn this blessing for us. When we look at Jesus' character, we are looking at someone who did what he did for us, but we are also looking at our future. His character, as as a Christian, his character is your future. You will be blessed in the way that this text describes because you will look like Jesus looks. So in other words, we don't just look at all this stuff that Jesus accomplished and say, whew, he did it, now I don't have to. That's not the right response for a Christian. Gratitude for what he did and what he gives us is important. But we look at him and what he was like and we say, oh, I want that. Just look how beautiful he is. I can't look at what was so important to him that it took him to the grave and not care about whether or not my life reflects it. So what what, what we see in Jesus is our redeemer, but also our model and a promise that one day by God's power, we will be like him. And what we see in these verses, reflected in Jesus' own life, what we see in these verses is that this kind of compassion, this kind of humility, This kind of sympathy, this kind of non-retaliation that responds to evil with peace, blessing, grace. It's not an optional accessory for a Christian. It's an expected outcome. Yes, it's a work to be done by God's grace and power. Yes, this change in us takes time. It isn't automatic. It isn't all at once. Yes, our only hope for it is God's work in us, but... It is something, as Christians, we want to want. It is a change that is not 
casual for us, not something we could give or take. It's everything. It's something to aim for, to pray for, to work for. Jesus' character is our future. Wouldn't you rather have a little more taste of that future now than wait? It's something to work on together. And, and, and at, at the very least, something we've got to protect ourselves from, from avoiding by justifying ourselves in our conduct, by, by, by justifying ourselves in the way that we're wired up to do, to return evil for evil or to, to protect our own interests against the interests of others. Like we, we have to be done with it. We have to put it off. We have to look at Jesus and know, I don't know how I get there, but he's told me that's where he's taking me. I want it. What can I do today in solidarity with my friends to look more like him? That's the picture that Peter's put in front of us, the picture of a beloved community. I wanna pray together now that God will do this work for us. Father, we don't have hope for this apart from your power. So we ask you again to help us, to make us an alien community that is for the country, the world, the city, whatever that you put us in. That we want their good through looking like Jesus in the way we love one another. Help us because we know it's more than we can do. Thank you for your word that puts it in front of us. Thank you for your promise that motivates us to go forward towards it without fear. And thank you for your spirit who's powerful and active even right now. In Jesus' name, amen.